Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in the season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. Maya Angelou, in a famous episode of Iconoclast, was talking to famous comedian and namesake of an AME bishop, Dave Chappelle. And in this conversation with Dave Chappelle, she tells this wonderful, amazing story that on the set of Poetic Justice, as she's talking to Janet Jackson, she sees two men in an argument, knockdown, drag out argument, cussing and all the while. And as an elder truly does, walked over and began to interject between these two. And as one of them flared up and is like, who are you? And is using all of the curse words they can. She looks at him and says, do you know how important you are? Do you know how special you are? And as he kept flaring up, she kept repeating it. Do you know how important you are? Do you know how special you are? And she began to keep interjecting this until he kind of slowly came down and tears began to fall from his eyes. And she talks about wiping the tears from his eyes and having this conversation. And then she goes back to Janet Jackson and Janet Jackson looks at her and says, I didn't know that you knew Tupac. To which Maya Angelou replies, who? I don't know what Tupac, Tupac, whatever. She tells this story to Dave Chappelle in a famous episode of the Iconoclast series. That kind of interjection, that kind of community-led intervention has been top of mind in a lot of conversations. And as these conversations have gone out, we have seen in our own community moments where we are being called to have to intercede from the burial of babies this this past week, we've had burial of babies. We've had new officer-involved shootings. We have had the, the, dism- the attempted dismantling of George Floyd Square by the city of Minneapolis. There is a lot to talk about. But one thing is clear, no matter what, that the time in this story that we are living for intervention is upon us. Well, Miss Georgia, catch us up on all the stuff that's happened this week. Yeah, it has been a very intense week. I think just as folks were settling into summer and looking forward to unplugging and taking time off, the city of Minneapolis, as you mentioned, brought bulldozers to the memorial site that has been preserved for George Floyd. Uh, Many of you know that intersection has remained closed for over a year. And for months, there has been these uh, threats, these claims that that space would be, uh, you know, uh, invaded or, or um, that that space would be um, reclaimed by the city of Minneapolis. I think since uh, about January, the mayor and the uh, chief of police have both made statements saying that they wanted to remove the barricades. We've heard from city councilors saying that it was going to happen. And even the day that the verdict came out, when Derek Chauvin was found guilty about an hour after the verdict came out, the mayor of Minneapolis held a press conference saying that they were going to reopen that intersection. Uh, But up until uh, last week, we hadn't seen them take any action. 
And at about four o'clock in the morning, public works uh, employees, which are employees of the city of Minneapolis, showed up and uh, started removing barricades and started actually putting up uh, concrete blocks in front of the place where George Floyd took his last breath. And so they have this plan. They've outlined a plan to preserve certain aspects of the memorial site. And then they have plans to change things. And there's a bit of a division. Agape, which is a organization um, headquartered in Minneapolis, has partnered with the city of Minneapolis to reopen this inter- intersection. And they have communicated to the public that they have been in conversations with residents and business owners who are in favor of this happening. Meanwhile, those who have worked uh, diligently, those who have worked relentlessly over the last year to preserve this memorial, to go through and um, provide documentation of all the artifacts, art, and sacrifices that have been brought forward uh, for Floyd, those who have been doing all of this work actually wanted to keep that intersection closed. And there was a list of things that they wanted to see done before they reopened that site. And so it was a very painful day for a lot of the uh, community who had been preserving that space. And it it was a painful uh, day for a lot of people who went to that space for healing and, and comfort. Simultaneously, while folks were gathering in that area to process what happened, there were reports of yet another Black man being killed by law enforcement in Minneapolis. And while it wasn't the Minneapolis Police Department, it was U.S. Marshals, nonetheless, it it reignited that mistrust and abuse of power Uh, That we, again, are seeing that an African-American man has not been able to be detained and uh, he he wasn't given his day in court, you know, And, and you can compare and contrast other situations where white individuals with similar charges also who have a a handgun are allowed to go through the process. Um, And so, so it, you know, there was some response uh, late into the night uh, regarding um, people's frustrations and, and disappointment of, of Winston Smith losing his life. You know, that, I think it's important to, and you did this in your coverage, which again, it continues to be phenomenal. We got to hear from, in watching some of your live coverage with Black Press, you got to, um, we got to hear some of the folks who had been keeping George Floyd Square um, and their responses to what was happening. Again, highlighting those demands, which were an open invitation for the city to, to connect and work on tangible problems. This idea that somehow it's just folks who are, are, are making decisions in the spur of the moment is just not true because there are these very clear and thought out lists of demands that, that, that folks wanted to see as you, as you called out that were an invitation to work on these issues. And, and, and instead the, it, it, it just seems like from, from where I'm sitting that the city decided not to engage in those conversations, but instead to, to kind of go its own direction and make its own own choice. And I think there's a disconnect for me between what we heard in the press conferences from the mayor 
um, in the city council around this being a community discussion, that community is asking for this reopening. But that's a completely different story than we're hearing from even the residents right around George Floyd Square. And so there's this cognitive dissonance that that remains. But there's also cognitive dissonance because, because of the reason that George Floyd Square opened in the first place. The reason that that is the space that it is, um, it, it, it seems like there's, there's yet again, we're ignoring what the community is actually saying in its, in its big scope, wide space, nuanced way. Um, and, and, and I think that has been troubling for me as well as we see the, 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 the dismantling. And I'm curious where you see this headed. Is this going to be a point of, of, of contention again? Are, uh, what is the tact that folks in, that have been caretaking for, from George Floyd Square and those who are gathering even now, what, what is the tact that they are, they are thinking of taking at this moment? Well, at, at this moment, one of the things that I have continuously heard from the individuals who have been preserving the memorial site for George Floyd is people over property. And so they respect that not everybody has the same viewpoint as them. But at the same time, I think we need to acknowledge their truth. And their truth is that that space needed to be preserved until at minimum, it seemed like those four officers were convicted. And we know that that trial has been pushed back for the other three officers. Uh, and so it feels like almost losing a little ground uh, before truly seeing justice for George Floyd. And I know that there are a number of other demands that they had. We heard from Jay Webb, who is the gardener in, in that area, saying that he wants to see the George Floyd, George Floyd Memorial Site become a national uh, historic site. And so, uh, you know, there's a number of, of different truths that um, have been brought forth by the group of individuals who are preserving that site. And then uh, what concerns me about trying to see both sides of this is from the city standpoint, and, and we know that they're working in partnership with Agape. So from the city and Agape standpoint in saying that the residents and the business owners want to see this site reopened, uh, it would have been really nice to have heard from them at these press conferences. Why didn't we hear from the business owners who want this site reopened? Why didn't we hear from the residents? Why didn't they come forward? Why didn't they speak their truth? Why are they hiding behind the city and uh, this organization that a lot of people are not familiar with? The other thing I think that's even more concerning, because a lot of people will say, well, maybe they just don't feel comfortable. So I understand that. Maybe they don't feel comfortable. So, but why are we hearing two different narratives from the city and from Agape? The city is saying Agape is leading. Agape is saying the city is leading. And that breaks down to this. Agape representatives told me, and you can go back in my coverage and see this on the record, that they were unaware when the city was coming in. But it has been outlined in emails from the city that Agape was instructed to be there when they arrived and that they would be working together. So in order for Agape to be there when the city arrived, they had to know, they had to know when the city was going to be there. So there's 
there's some things that we should really be paying attention to. There's some details that we should really be paying attention to in all of this. If we are really trying to seek truth, it's important, yes, understand both sides. But what's more important is to seek truth. I mean, I think I want to underscore what you just put together. That's just a, just good reporting. And, and, and you're going to get even more conversation later on as we bring in our guests with the wonderful coverage that's been happening with the Racial Reckoning Project. Um, but what you just outlined there also um, makes me, it makes my historical mind pop up because yet again, we are in this space where we are hearing a pretty false binary because I, rem- I, I remember not just you, but other folks speaking to the conversations that have been happening with the caretakers, with folks who have been holding and upkeeping George Floyd Square. Um, uh, this notion that somehow folks in this community haven't been talking to the folks at George Floyd Square, that there hasn't been uh, interaction between local business owners and community and the folks who are keeping George Floyd Square, um, you know, instead of taking the line of supporting that dialogue, um, I just have to imagine that there would be some wonderful ways of of engaging across each other if they, you know, in pursuing folks talking about them, having that conversation together. Why is it that in the, when George Floyd was first opened, we saw all these community circles and dialogues about what this space means, how they even got to that list of things that need to be, that was an invitation for a whole lot of different folks to have a whole lot of different conversation. And, um, and, and, and instead, we, without talking, and this is the thing that, that, that's getting me, there, there's all these channels and opportunities to actually have conversation with the folks who are involved and folks are bypassing those channels. Instead of going and saying, let's have this dialogue, let's, let's reach out and connect um, to the folks who are there, to the folks who have been keeping there, to the community at large, folks are making decisions and then trying to figure out ways to validate those decisions. Um, and unfortunately, as we've talked about fracture historically, this has been the pattern of that fracture when folks choose not to just walk into the middles of the zone and, and say, all right, let's talk. It reminds me of the tension between the Southern Christian Leadership Council Conference and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee wanted to push the issue. And, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference had a, a, um, had a, a method. We we're going to raise the media and attention of the world to, to value. They were fighting the same fight, but on multiple different levels. And there were these tensions that went back and forth. And then, and then SNCC and Southern Christian Leadership Conference, they sat down and had it out. There's a story. It was, it was, you know, it was even mentioned in the in the movie Selma that this this meeting between the two camps having to sit down and say, all right, let's just hash out all of our beef right now. And then we ended up with a plan that spoke to the needs of all the groups involved. I just didn't see that happening here, even though that's the historical pattern that we've seen work well and not pre- and prevent fracture. You know, and two things. Yes. This hap- this has happened historically, right? And when and then also when you look at communication, there has been a lack of communication, but then there has also been very clear communication. And communication is not always verbal. And so when you retreat from communicating verbally to reach some type some type of consensus collectively about what is the best pathway to move forward. 
And when you decide to retreat from that because the conversations are not progressing as quickly as you would like, or they're not going in the direction that you want them to go, you retreat from that. And then you decide to take action that you are aware goes against the desires of the other party that you had been in communication with. And so you're still communicating, but now you're not communicating verbally. You're communicating with your actions that you have made a choice to move forward without consensus. And so that is what I have observed in terms of the way the city has decided to move forward in their communications and lack thereof. Uh, But also to parallel that with the historical context, let's ask ourselves, what are we giving up here if we decide to abort our preservation of this space? What are we giving up as we have just conceded the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre? What would have happened if Stratford, whose hotel was burnt down to the ground, what would have happened if Stratford would have came back to Greenwood and would have stood and said, I'm not moving until you give us our insurance claims. What would have happened if the owners of Dreamland Theater would have came back to Greenwood, would have came back to Black Wall Street and would have stood in that space and said, I'm not moving until you give me my insurance claims. What would have happened if all of the residents and the business owners of that 40 block radius of black wealth would have came back and stood and said, I'm not spending another dime until you get the body count accurate until you stop calling this a riot and start calling it what it is. Well, how, how would the economy be different? And so we have to really understand how in these moments, the way that we decide to continue to resist or the way that we decide to retreat has a ripple effect Mm. for generations to come. (laughs) I I just, I'm, I'm chuckling over here. One, because I'm trying to hold the amens in because we're in a radio format, but you about to shout me over here on some, on, on that'll preach in any pulpit that I've ever seen. You got my grandma over here talking about, "Mm mm-hmm, as she's making this beautiful chicken salad that I can't (laughs) wait to get into. But I mean, that is, save me some, that is, (laughs) we'll save you some, but that, that, what you just broke down and laid out is part of, 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 it's part of this narrative that has to be here. It has to be intact. And you actually went to the, to the um, Tulsa anniversary, right? And that's why it's fresh on my mind. Mm. And it's, it's easy to look back historically and provide context of the intersection of, of these two things. While they're very different, they're very similar because there is a, a desire for a racial reckoning. There is a desire for the systematic injustices that we're faced to, uh, to, to, to really just to, to not persist anymore. You know, and and so when you think about it wasn't in Tulsa, uh, it wasn't just the massacre. While that was horrific and while there should have been accountability for the hundreds of people who lost their lives, there is 
a deeper need for the accountability in the system that portrayed that to be a riot. There is a deeper need for accountability for the city officials who claimed that the death toll was only 35 for the individuals who created mass burial sites to, to make this look like only a few dozen people were killed when there was actually a few hundred like that there. And even the way that the system is designed in insurance policies, that because this was portrayed as a riot, it prevented uh, hundreds of African-American business owners from filing insurance claims. There are layers of the injustices that our people endured. And the fact that at the end of the day, what it, the cost was, what the price we had to pay was not just our blood that was spilled, but the inheritances of future generations. Because when you look, and I think Stratford was one of the the easiest examples to pull to Stratford, he had uh, one of the biggest black owned hotels uh, at that time in the country. And he also had dozens of other properties. So he was very wealthy and he was in a position to become the Hyatt or the Holiday Inn or the Marriott. But that was taken from him. And that was taken from future generations, that ability to really compete on a corporate level on you looking at uh, fortune 500 companies, how many of those businesses on black wall street had the potential to become a, a, a fortune 500 company. And, and that was dissipated. Um, and when you fast forward a hundred years and see now that that land What's been built there is a baseball stadium. Across the street from the baseball stadium, they're building condos and apartments and restaurants that are all white owned. And when you walk on the sidewalk of those businesses, every piece of concrete that your, your foot touches, there is a little brick dedicated to the black business that used to be there. And I'm tired of reading our history on these plaques and these memorials and yet and still there's no substantial tangible change that is produced from this. And, and so, yes, it's, it's very two very different situations. What happened to George Floyd's very different than what happened on Black Wall Street but the systems that allow them to happen are all very much connected. Thank you so much, Ms. Georgia, for breaking that down and for your continued coverage. And I know that you've got a whole team of folks that you are working with throughout the week on the Racial Reckoning Project. And, and I'm, I'm extremely blessed to be able to have two of the young women who are, are part of this. Y'all, y'all, I just need to say this. I, I don't have a nice, shiny way to say this. But we got some of the baddest women in Minnesota covering this thing. These young women of color who are who are leading the, the racial reckoning project are holding it down. And so we have Samantha <laughs> and Fevin, who, if you've been listening to recaps, listen to those recaps throughout the day, uh, throughout the week, and on the racial reckoning project. I see the messages going back between them uh, about things that are being covered all the way around. So I'm really excited to introduce you to other members of this team that are covering racial reckoning projects. 
I'm Samantha Honglong. Almost one year after the murder of George Floyd, art commemorating his life and the movement that followed were put on display at Phelps Park in Minneapolis. In Oklahoma in 1921, a white mob killed hundreds of black residents and burned over 35 blocks of a prosperous black neighborhood. For the Racial Reckoning Project, this is Faven Garazgihar. I want to toss it to you. You've heard uh, Samantha and Fevin, you've heard uh, me and Miss Georgia just recapping and talking. But what's coming up for you as you were listening to our earlier conversation? I'm Samantha Honglong, a reporter for the Racial Reckoning Project. With everything you were saying about how we frame history and frame the way that we view history, there were articles shared from when the Tulsa massacre happened, and it was highlighting how whites were dying in this riot. And it makes me think back, like, press does play a big role in how we view things and how we report things. Um, With everything happening with the Uptown shooting, it has me thinking about what the police tell us and how we take the police narrative into our reporting. I just always found this weird when I started reporting, the police can just say, this case is under investigation, we can't give you any details. But that's changed a lot over the past year, just with George Floyd. And even looking at the original statement from George Floyd, I feel like I've been thinking a lot about how we take what police tell us, and now there's this mistrust, and a very, very reasonable mistrust in the police and what they tell us. What is the truth, and and how do we portray the truth? And where do we take it from, and who do we listen to? Uh, my name is Feyman Garazgihar. I am a reporter with the Racial Reckoning Project. And yeah, hearing this, I also think about, you know, who who are the voices we are listening to. And, um, you know, what really resonated with me was uh, that the false dichotomy that we've kind of constructed uh, regarding the square of, you know, the city versus the residents. And I think back to, you know, over the course of our project, We've been to George Floyd Square multiple times and we've talked to different visitors and organizers. Um, And one person had said, you know, this is more than just the trial. It's more than the square. It's more than the the memorial. This is about the whole movement and everything people have been experiencing. And so as it comes to the square, I do think about, you know, who are the residents who is speaking for them Um, and the way that, you know, there are some residents who have expressed um, a desire to have things return you know, to not have their neighborhood be a tourist attraction um, and seeing how the city kind of utilizes um, some of that dissent to um, deflect on their commitments to the justice resolutions proposed by organizers or um, the situation where we want to preserve the memorial because it is a space that has been useful and healing and being a gathering point. Um, but it's also, you know, we don't want to forget um and it can feel like without a physical location, um, some of that interest dissipates and it's not as in your face um, with the kind of actions people want to see. Or, you know, it, it seems like, all right, this whole George Floyd situation has wrapped up and we're 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 done now. Like it, it can just be um, a very clean bureaucratic process of having a fist as a roundabout, but it's not um, an organic space of mutual aid um, that it is right now. And for the both of you, I'm curious to know, in this last few months reporting on all that's transpired in our community, what would you say has been the most powerful story that you've reported? And what would you say has been the most challenging moment you've encountered being out in the field 
uh, reporting on the last few months? I think for me, maybe it's just because I'm young and naive, but watching the Derek Chauvin trial, I learned so much. And I, I don't know, maybe just like the jury selection process really stood out to me and was really challenging for me to process how they question jurors and how they select jurors and the flaws in that and who is considered biased and who is considered not biased made me realize like, oh, maybe I should relook at like what I know of the systems that exist. Yeah. And then I think the most rewarding story, and I didn't have a story come out of this, but being there at George Floyd Square the day the verdict was read, the moments of silence beforehand, and then hearing the verdict and the reactions after, it felt like a long, a, a reaction, long awaited. It just felt right. And it was incredible to be a part of that experience. I guess one of the most challenging parts is working with our time constraint, which is, you know, a one minute, 45 seconds and trying to um, convey the messages that we're hearing from people. Um, and so one particularly challenging story was, you know, in the week that Dante Wright was killed, um, hearing such powerful stories from his family and and seeing their grief and really sharing kind of the worst moment of their lives and trying to just kind of consolidate that and also being aware as, you know, we see this uh, coalition of families who have lost um, their loved ones to police violence, um, share their stories and and to know that I, we can't share all of that. And there's just so much grief and um, so much resilience that has been out there that has to be put into a, a very congestible form for media um, can be a bit like, yeah, it's challenging um, because you want you want to share that and just kind of honor their humanity, um, but you have to find different forms for it. Um, and yeah, in terms of uh, powerful moments, definitely, I think in, in all of our stories, being able to connect with people who are organizing and who are hopeful has been really um, helpful, even for me as an individual, because... Um, People, you know, they say they're hopeful because they have to be, but it's also just their incredible strength and, and desire to be together in community um, and to always be like working together towards, you know, the, the next better place that we all can achieve um, has definitely been, yeah, a definite, like a, a helpful thing to see. You're listening to Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, created and supported by Ampers, KMOJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit racialreckoningmn.org. If you want to hear more of the amazing coverage by Ms. Georgia and this wonderful team of young women journalists, go to racialreckoningmn.org and find out more from documentaries to the daily updates to more bearing witness. You know, your... You know, as you listen to to and and, and watch Miss Georgia, uh, you know, and her coverage on the ground, trying to keep this 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 nuanced intersection open and help us to understand the multiple layers. Um, you know, I've I, I've seen you have to chew on similar things where you are are having to capture a moment and keep the this this whole story intact while people are 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 running with pieces of it. You know, in many different directions. I'm I'm curious. To what what has been your greatest point of frustration 
as you try to tell this narrative, aside from, you know, the constraints of having to distill it down as you spoke to Fevin, but for you, what has been, what have been the particular points of frustration for you as you cover this and you have to be a human yourself while also telling this narrative, this full narrative in a space where folks don't seem to be interested necessarily in a whole complete story. What, what have, what has been some of your points of frustration throughout this coverage? Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering it correctly, but I mean, something that I have found frustrating is there is so much happening. Um, and there's only so much we can share. And there are like little, little pieces that we find that seem really huge or they kind of, um, speak to a larger issue, but perhaps they aren't as timely or, yeah, with the time constraint, um, they just can't be put into the story. And so, uh, like for example, during the Dante Wright, um, after his, his death, um, we saw like a, a Republican Senator come out and say, we, we need to have this urgent press conference. And his conclusion was we aren't going to, um, pass any substantial legislation and, um, you know, let's not hold our budget bills hostage. And so that was really difficult to watch and to know that, you know, this isn't going to get a lot of attention because it isn't newsworthy per se, but it does, it it matters and it's indicative of like a a larger issue with our legislation. No, I agree with you that there's just so much to be covered. And I think one of my frustrations is in the role that I am being a reporter means paying attention to it all. And I will catch myself watching the press conference at 1 a.m. or um, just always scrolling on Twitter and figuring out what's going on and reading people's thoughts and opinions. And I think the most frustrating thing is trying to capture all of that. And also just, it's interesting because looking at the larger picture or what the community is saying and also talking to your friends and family, like all these different circles are saying different things and not everyone is paying attention to the same details. And I feel like I'm very intentional in how I consume my news and my media in that I try to get all of the right facts in my head. I try to straighten out what's going on. Why is this complicated for these people and not these people? But I feel like with the way that people consume media, it's very selective or it can be. And so one of my frustrations is that I feel like I know all these details and know the nuances or like at least can interpret them in a way that's like nuanced. But it's hard to like try and also think about like how other people may be perceiving it or thinking about it and wondering like what's on their mind. I think I tend to think about what other people are thinking about. And I think it's frustrating because I do think a lot. So that's like another part of it. Well, you both have been so immersed in all of the details through the trial, through Dante Wright's case, now with Winston Smith. I'm curious to know from both of you as reporters, how are you how are you internalizing everything? And I think more importantly, how do you think that this moment will be defined in history? You know, right now it feels like this has been a paradigm shifting moment um though from what inside it can maybe be like i'm biased because i'm so into the details and i i feel like things have changed and i'm hearing people note that things have changed um um and then i guess internalizing wise um reporting has definitely been a, a tool for me to manage 
my, my own feelings and my own response to everything that's been happening. Um, cause I'm from St. Paul and I've been here through Jamar Clark and Philando Castile. So, and I, I remember just how people felt after that and being in community with, you know, his rel- their relatives or, um, you know, the, the community at large to then experience this again and feel the same hopelessness. But now in reporting to, to be like, we get to report the way that we want to be seen and, and kind of amplify voices that um, should be heard has been helpful. And it gives me an experience also in which I can process things and kind of, um, and find hope in, in, in the little details that make it seem a little different from the past experiences. I have to like remind myself not to internalize as much because I, I'm a feeler. I like to feel feelings. <laughs> um, and so I've learned that like you're still human and there are things that are just right and wrong. Um, and your reporting should reflect that, I think. And I think I really appreciate this team because it makes me feel like I, I can look at the nuances and put that into my story and take ownership of what's reported and how it's reported. Um, just because in other places I've been, I feel like there have been pushback on like how things are reflected. And I think like for me as a reporter, I've just learned a lot in like owning my voice and how I think stories should be reflected. Just with this moment, I think for a lot of people, honestly, watching the eight minute video or nine minute video was the reset in their mind to get them thinking again and reflecting. And it's a harsh reality because for some, this is a lived experience that has always been true. But I think I saw a lot of people who are kind of trying to figure out how to process this. So I think historic in the way of like, wake up, think a little more. um, I think it's definitely historic in that way. And I think the fact that Derek Chauvin was found guilty was historic in itself too. Um, And it's a step further towards progress. So that makes me hopeful. You know, so, you know, as we wrap up, one of the things that we always do is we do a check-in to see how you are being you in this moment. Part of the, the, the purpose, amongst all the things that we've talked about for Bearing Witness, is being able to have a, a pin in the moment and the experience of folks who've been on the ground here at this, at this center point uh, for, for racial reckoning, or one of many center points throughout our history. And you, your frontline coverage uh, for, this, for this moment in history books. And so, you know, one of the things we like to document is how you are being you in this moment. Um, Because as we've talked about before, one of the things that unfortunately we have to contend with in this nation is that we, um, you know, the hope that this will be the last moment is, is not strong, at least not for me. Unfortunately, I have to come to the realization or the reality that it's very possible that we'll have more moments uh, before we learn. Um, that's been the history of people throughout the throughout the world, <laughs> throughout history, and unfortunately, that's going to continue to be our history. Although we 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 want to think that that arc bends towards justice in the long run, it's just that arc keeps getting longer and longer and longer the closer we get to a to a the moment the moment that we want to be. So, given all of that, I just said I know I'm loquacious, but I really want to know how are you being you in this moment as we close out our show. Well, we talked about claiming space and how to do that, especially, you know, with George Floyd Square this week. And I've been playing around with that question in my head of, like, how do I take up space? 
And I think a lot of times I tend to just kind of hide in my little shell or um, not really, you know, your thoughts are more important than mine. But I've been really within myself trying to just express myself in the way that I am and try to be unapologetic, uh, unapologetically me. Um, and it's harder than it seems. <laughs> so that is me right now. That's what I'm working on. <laughs> it's just being me in the moment and saying what I want to say. Samantha, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Yeah. Fevin, how are you being you in this moment? Yeah, same as Samantha. I think it's definitely recalling that even as we are in such a difficult time, um, life has been happening and it will continue to happen. So um, being very intentional after the end of like a working period to just turn things off and um, and really have that be for me and to, to just remember the things that I had wanted to do. Um, so if there were things that I've always had on my list or um, food places I wanted to try to make sure that I'm doing that and, you know, living a, a regular life um, of, of happiness <laughs> and, and like growth and just trying different things and spending time with loved ones. Um, because, yeah, I mean, it makes things sustainable and, um, just kind of puts perspective that, you know, we all work and we are all hoping for justice, but, um, you know, we also live here today and it's important to enjoy every moment of our existence. So how I'm being me a little bit different, actually, almost the opposite of Samantha. I feel like I have been in a space, especially with this project, the racial reckoning project, we brought on new reporters and I was like, you know, I want to take up less space and I want to create more space for uh, younger journalists who are stepping into this role to get out here and tell stories. And it somehow that translated to our, uh, you know, manager that I was taking time off. <laughs> and so when she saw me in Tulsa, she was like, oh, so you mean to tell me you were taking time off to just go cover something else. But really, my intent was to truly create space for uh, other journalists to have those experiences. Uh, because each experience you 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 have, each story you tell uh, really helps make you a stronger reporter. And uh, for me, I think it's important in this time. It's so important in this time that we uh, create spaces to cultivate new voices, especially voices um, that are not represented in mainstream media. So I'm being me by creating space, uh, also working with some other uh, partner organizations to work with other youth who are interested in potentially pursuing journalism as a career. Uh, so yeah, just really centering everything in in storytelling uh, and, and acknowledging the power that is in storytelling and, and traditionally how our community has used that uh, as a way to preserve our stories, uh, our history. So that's how I'm being me in this moment. Ashe, Ashe. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm being me in this moment. I, I just I find it hilarious that your time off, you went to Tulsa. Um, I'm going to be in a fight with my wife because uh, we're taking a family vacation, big air quotes, to Alabama, hooking up the camper, going to do that. And um, it just so happens to coincide with the um, the handover of one of the um, 
uh, spare monuments uh, from the from the lynching memorial that's going to be coming back to to Minnesota and eventually to Duluth. And so I found a way to to, to find work um, in the space of self self rest. But um, I think how I'm being me in this moment is really centering on meaning. Um, we we I, I don't think we spend enough time on meaning making in our society. Period. Um, we're so fast paced. We move so fast. We have such a focus on deliverables that the meaning making that actually matters. You know, when you think about what education used to be, it used to be a heavy dose of philosophy and looking at how and why the world is what it is. Um, and we have kind of morphed ourselves into a society that is much more focused on what you can produce and um, what is or is not, not the why, not the how, not the how it connects. And so I think meaning making has been the thing that I've been that's been front and center for me at least this past week since the last time we engaged on this question. So that's how I'm being me. It's well, always so deep and and philosophical. Well, uh, <laughs> got me thinking that... about the meaning of so many other things. <laughs> well, you know, I just today I was advanced to the next level in my process for ordination in the, so the district, uh, the local folks have said, yes, send him along to our annual conference. And so God willing in September, I will be ordained uh, and become Reverend Galloway. So I'm in that moment because that moment is real and present. So that's just how you're going to get it from me right now. Um, but Samantha and Fevin, I want to thank you. Your work has been remarkable. Um, this whole team, y'all, I just, I can't say it enough. So I'm going to shout it again that there's a powerful group of women on the Racial Reckoning Project who are reporting, who are capturing this story, who are putting themselves both on the front line and in the heart of the difficult things that we can't bring ourselves to watch. And yet this crew is watching it all. They are truly bearing witness. And so because they are demonstrating the very, the very uh, motto that we keep here, uh, I'm gonna kick it over to you, Miss Georgia, to, to, to remind folks of, of, of how we make this work. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This has been Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Programming on this station is supported in part by Minnesota Department of Health. Hi, my name is Angela Barnes, Operations Manager at Arts Health Center for the African Diaspora. I was skeptical at first about getting the vaccine like many people. It seemed too fast, but I don't know. I just didn't know what I was going to do. But after doing my own research, I decided it was safe to get. Research for yourself. Find a credible website or websites, then make the decision for yourself. Since getting the vaccine, I've been able to reconnect with friends and family that I haven't seen in almost a year. It's been great being able to hug people again and just generally be around people that you haven't seen. So if you're still feeling leery, check it out. Do your research. But please get your vaccine as soon as you can. COVID vaccines are safe and effective. More information about the COVID vaccines, including how to find a vaccination site near you, is online at vaccineconnector.mn.gov.